the one and only Cliff Richard and the Shannon. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 12 of the We Say Yeah podcast a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in mostly chronological order. Wow, episode 12. That means this podcast has been going for almost a year, and it doesn't even feel like a year. I mean, I know it's a year because I've got the bills from Podbean and Zoom to prove it, but it feels like we just got started. Now, when you consider that we've covered the years 1958, 1959, and 1960, and now we're getting into the releases of 1961, I'd say we're on track to get through Cliff's entire catalog and The Shadows' entire catalog by about 2045. So exercise and eat your vegetables. And you, too, may live long enough to hear us review music, the air that I breathe. So, second order of business here. I wanted to uh, read some reactions from our We Say Yeah Facebook page about last month's episode with Terry Hope, where we reviewed 1961's Listen to Cliff album. Bjorn Hansen, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, writes, I got this album and Cliff sings back in the early 70s and at the time found these old standards odd song choices for a rock singer, but it makes perfect sense that Cliff also aimed for a mature audience. Darren Price writes, Just catching up now and listening to this podcast, I completely agree with Mark Cunningham. Most of the Beatles fans I meet try and dismiss the influence Cliff and the Shadows had on them. I've always said that Cliff and the Shads have not been given the recognition they deserve, and yes, it does annoy me. Great podcast. Always love to hear my friend Terry Hope on the airwaves. Thank you. Tim Cooper writes, Just listen to this. Thanks for doing them. As I was born in 1961... I didn't buy the album at the time, but in the 70s, when I was getting into Cliff's music, I would have probably played this album just the once, then put it on the shelf to gather dust. So it's really good to hear these tracks again, along with info on them. Wonder why Nari Paramore had Tony Meehan drumming for him? It's a good question. I've wondered that myself, and I'm just assuming it's because maybe Tony was the best drummer around. Agree, Nari did a lot for Cliff's recording career, but I think also Peter Gormley, his manager, deserves a lot of credit, along with David Bryce, Cliff's tour manager, who later took over the reins when Peter retired. Our friend Mark Cunningham, who's going to be on the program next month, writes, This is an album I probably liked a lot more when I was younger. A lot of fun songs on it. I reckon what I'd say was probably Hank's idea to cover as he and Bruce went to see Ray Charles in Paris around this time. And Hank picked what I'd say as one of his all-time favorite records on another podcast I recently listened to. But Cliff was also a big Ray Charles fan at the time, so probably didn't need too much convincing to cover it. Hank also said in that interview that everyone and their mother covered the track. They even had a go themselves, but was a very rough version. But the original is a classic. True Love Will Come to You is probably my favorite, too, on the album. Just classic Cliff in the Shadows. I Want You to Know is another favorite, but I reckon they were covering the Everly Brothers version more so than the original Fats Domino version. Beat Out That Rhythm on a Drum is one of the records Cliff picked out to take to a desert island when he appeared on Desert Island Discs in 1960. The version he liked was by Pearl Bailey. Out of the standards on the album, I like We Kissed in a Shadow and Sentimental Journey. Both were also sung by Doris Day, who Cliff was also a big fan of. Thanks so much for all of those comments. And by the way, at the time we're recording this episode, the new Elvis biopic just premiered in theaters, and I posted on Facebook that it's inevitable that we will one day have a Cliff biopic. 
And there's some great discussion happening on that thread between Dagmar and Bjarn and Alan and Paul and Maya and Anita and myself and other people. So go on over to Facebook, look for We Say Yeah, that's our Facebook page, and uh, join in. Finally, our last order of business here. We received some more reviews on Apple Podcasts, and I have a devil of a time trying to find these reviews. So my apologies if you wrote these months ago and we only just got around to them. Someone named Sensai Hoots writes, if you're looking for not only a podcast devoted to Cliff Richard in the shadows, but the best podcast on the topic, then look no further. Thank you for that. My goodness. This is starting off great. I like this uh, review. Covering all of their musical output in chronological order from the beginning, this show is both as informative as it is entertaining. Ghosty, the host, is knowledgeable, charming, funny, and the perfect guide into the world of early pre-Beatles British rock and roll. And he's got a voice that's perfect for educating the masses. I think I'm going to hire Sensei Hoots to do all my PR. All of the guests he brings on to talk music are equally interesting as well. I was a casual fan of Cliff in the Shadows before, but after listening to a few episodes of We Say Yeah, I'm definitely crazy about these guys. If you're a fan of Cliff, the Shadows, early rock and roll, or just great music in general... I highly recommend tuning into this phenomenal show. You won't regret it. Running Hat, thank you so much for that, by the way. Running Hatter writes the ultimate monthly Cliff Richard and the Shadows podcast. Thanks for that, too. Now, as awesome as those reviews are, we did receive our very first one star review. Someone <laughs> does not appreciate the program. That's fine, but you can counteract. That one-star review, because it brings down, I think, the visibility of the podcast or something like that by going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a four-star review or a five-star review. Please do. It does uh, help us out, as I've since learned. All right. On to our guest this month. It's Dennis Dyken, best known as the drummer for the American rock and roll band The Smithereens and as the host of a radio program called Denny's Den on WFMU.org. We had a really good conversation about the 1961 EP, The Shadows to the Four, as well as the A Girl Like You single and the, the Contiki single. I enjoy using these hits EPs to circle back and talk about some songs we've already covered, but we get fresh ears on them and a fresh perspective. So this is a long conversation which branches off into topics like New York radio, exotica music, the question of whether Cliff and the Shadows could have been successful in America with the right record label supporting them. And we also cover a subject that Dennis Dyken was instrumental in bringing to the fore with a very popular compilation album, producer Joe Meek. I was fascinated with Joe Meek for many years. Uh, I remember when Telstar was on the radio. I was about uh, 62. I was five going on six, I think. And I remember hearing it on the car radio at night in particular, and it scared the pants off of me. I just, there was something so haunting and eerie about that record. And to this day, it has the same effect on me. I just adore that record. So anyway, there wasn't a whole lot of information on Joe Meek in, in America anyway. But I guess it was in the 70s. Sire Records did uh, a series of 
you know, the history of British rock and then uh, the roots of British rock. There was uh, some double LP sets. So there was little bits of information that was coming out in liner notes about this eccentric producer, Joe Meek, and uh, publications like Trouser Press and the Rock Marketplace were talking about him. And so I always wanted to learn more about Joe Meek. And then finally, I think it was 1991, the uh, book The Telstar Man came out, and it was a, a bio by John Repsch on, uh, on Joe Meek. And it yeah, a pretty, uh, pretty well-researched, lengthy tome, and it just blew my mind wide open. And I started going bonkers, uh, trying to grab whatever I could, compilations uh, of his music. And um, I was friendly with the, the folks at Razor and Tie Records, and I proposed the idea to them. And I collaborated with a fellow there by the name of Rob Kemp. We put together this compilation, It's Hard to Believe It, The Amazing World of Joe Meek. and uh, people really gravitated towards it. And I think it opened people's minds to this very unusual, but very commercial music, much of which did very little in the States. Have I the right by the honeycombs and Telstar? I think we're the only, uh, right. Uh, forked lightning here, but he had quite a few, uh, hits in England. So anyway, that, that's how it came about. And, uh, we had to license all these tracks and I did as much research as I could and put the notes together. And, uh, it was a real labor of love, and I, I still think that compilation holds up well, and it's a, it's a fun listen. Yeah, I didn't know much about Joe Meek either, other than he produced Telstar, until that compilation came out. And I had also read in either a generic history of rock and roll book, or maybe in a Buddy Holly biography, that he had produced a tribute to Buddy Holly record, or several mm -hmm. of them. Well, the other interesting Buddy Holly-related thing about Meek is, well, Meek was really into seances and the occult, and in 1958, he had either a, a Ouija board or a seance experience that predicted Buddy's death. Ooh. To the day, February 3rd, but he had it as 1958. Ah. A story, and I think this is substantiated in newspaper articles, when Buddy was in England touring, he went to see him and met him backstage and told him about this. Wow. Yeah, that's really something, isn't it? The Joe Meek story gets even more harrowing. Uh, you know, I always felt bad for the Beatles because remember in 1964, they were flying all across the U.S. and there was a psychic in the newspapers right. and on television who was predicting that they were going to die in a plane crash. I would imagine. Gene Dixon, I think her name Yes, Gene Dixon. I read somewhere there was a quote from George Harrison who was, you know, saying, thanks a lot, lady, you know, as if we didn't have enough pressure. But the, to cap <laughs> off the whole Joe Meek, Buddy Holly thing, he chose February 3rd, 1967 to kill his landlady and ultimately himself. Well, this podcast has certainly taken a very macabre turn. Uh, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us how you first became aware of The Shadows, Cliff, Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Obviously, whenever I have a fellow American on the podcast, it's a different experience from the rest of the world. So how did you uh, first become aware of uh, the Shadows? Well, um, that's interesting uh, that the States is, is the only country that doesn't really have a big uh, recognition of the Shadows. Uh, I guess I heard about them in passing growing up, uh, certainly not 
at all on American radio, but uh, I guess just from reading about uh, British bands and being a Beatles fan and uh, all the groups that came around uh, in the 60s from Great Britain, you couldn't help but at least learn about the existence of the Shadows. But I really did not, and Cliff Richard, you know, uh, I know he had records released here on Epic, I think, in the early 60s. But man, they yes, they didn't get much airplay, and uh, I certainly was not aware of them. Um, you know, it was just little shards here and there uh, of, of their music that would come through. I, really, I would say it wasn't until the 70s and 80s when I started digging deep back into older music forms, you know, I really got way into the uh into the 50s and and 60s and, and earlier too just being disillusioned with some of the corporate rock and and uh, arena rock that was coming around during that time uh, my curiosity was really peaked and by the way new york radio i'm not sure where you grew up but um where did you grow up uh my time was split between living in new jersey and being exposed to new york radio and then living in virginia and being able to bring in on the radio, New York radio, late at night. So mm-hmm. I certainly grew up hearing a lot of it. Okay. Because what my point was that in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, New York radio was kind of a wonderland of discovery and, uh, and variety. I, I think I knew more about doo-wop. In 1971, I, I think I've forgotten more about doo-wop. <laughs> <laughs> there was like three or four very scholarly programs on uh, Gus Gossert. You might remember him. Uh, mm-hmm. He was uh, the guru. And there was, uh, I think he, he was syndicated maybe, or he ran on a New York station. I forget if it was WOR or WABC or PI, whatever it was. But then there were some college stations that had weekly doo-wop shows. But these stations like WABC-FM, which was the precursor to WPLJ, they were playing all kinds of music. So that's a long-winded answer, but I was starting to dig back into, and very deeply into older music around that time. So I think in the 70s and 80s, I started actually buying Shadows Records, compilations. Uh, Mm. There was a box set called Shadugi. It was a vinyl box set. I remember getting that. And then I started really digging the shadows. And I, I'm not an expert, but I like their music very much. I probably know the music more than the titles on the bulk of their canon. But uh, anyway, another reason that I gravitated towards uh, digging into Cliff's earlier stuff, you know, of course, we knew the hits in America, like Devil Woman and we don't talk anymore, but right. in 1983, the Smithereens had the opportunity to work with Otis Blackwell, uh, the great songwriter who wrote so yeah. many hits for Elvis and Jerry Lee and Fever and on and on. But um, we were his backup band for about a year. We, we played live with him and did recording with him, but we did the song nine times out of ten in the show. Oh. Uh, I guess I was referencing the Ral Donner version. Nine times out of ten, baby, I told you And I came to tell you just nine times again Just how much I aim to hold you Again, and again, and again 
But then I discovered that Cliff had a hit in the shadows, had the hit in England with it. And that piqued my curiosity even more. So, uh, yeah, I remember buying, I remember we were on our first tour and we were in Helsinki in 1987. I don't know, this is just a silly memory, but I remember finding Cliff's hit album there and picking it up in Helsinki and nine times out of 10 was on there. Uh, just uh, another tangent. No, it's great stuff. I love collecting these stories on the podcast. And I'm assuming that that compilation you were talking about, that Shadoogie, the four tracks we're going to discuss today, maybe even the single a little later, were probably all on that compilation. So let's talk about this EP called The Shadows to the Four, which was released in May of 1961. This EP was a number one EP in the UK for 28 weeks. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? The first cut on this EP, written by Jerry Lorden, is Apache, a huge number one hit all over the world, except for America, where a cover version was rushed out, and that became the hit. So the U.S. was denied the phenomenon of the Shadows version of Apache. The rest of the world was not, and here it is in all its glory. As you just said, here in America, we knew it uh, by Jorgen Ingeman. Is that the correct pronunciation? I thought it was Jorgen Ingeman, but I may be pronouncing that wrong, so I don't yeah. know. Um, and that was a big hit in America, I guess around 61, 62. And I always loved that record. It was so haunting. And it does have a different personality than the Shadows version. But um, I have very fond memories of that. So I actually, it was kind of a, a head twister when I heard the Shadows version because the other one was so ingrained in, in my psyche. But I love Apache. Uh, I've played it in a number of cover bands, including one band that had two British guys in it, uh, John Hawkin, who played with the Nashville Teens, and uh, Graham Maybe, the bass player that plays with Joe Jackson. So they were all about playing Apache. But it's got such a haunting quality. It's um, it, it, it's it's just a, a unforgettable track. I, it's one of those tracks that maybe can be considered overplayed, but I never get tired of hearing it. It's just one of those great records that is always welcome, always. Yeah, I agree. I'm immune to ever getting sick of hearing Apache. Uh, Apache was recorded, by the way, on June 17th, 1960. The next song on this EP was recorded on October 7th, 1960, Man of Mystery, written by songwriter Michael Carr, who's best known, at least in my circles, for writing the song South of the Border. South of the Border Down Mexico way That's where I fell in love When the stars above came out to play And now as I wander My thoughts ever stray South of the border 
down Mexico way. But Man of Mystery is the theme to a British series called Edgar Wallace Mysteries. And I mentioned this when I had Vic Rust on the program and we talked about this song for the first time. The sound of this record prefigures the British spy music genre. Right. That, that suggests that crime jazz kind of feel. Yeah, I guess the Vic Flick was probably listening to these records quite a bit. The guy who played on the 007 theme. And uh, again, it's got a haunting quality. A lot of their records have a haunting quality to them. And this is one of them, too. And uh, it showcases their musicianship. It's just great track. You know, we were talking about the Shadows and their lack of success in the U.S., and I think some of that can be put down to the Ventures, who started at right exactly the same time and had a similar sound. And I think that they were having parallel careers, and the Ventures kind of stole some of that Shadows thunder in the U.S., now, let me ask you something. Were those shadows, let's say Apache and Man of Mystery, were those released in America? Sporadically. I mean, Cliff Richard and the Shadows material came out on a host of different labels uh, over the course of a short span of time. And they just had no label support and they were plagued by bad luck. If it wasn't Jorgen Ingman rushing out a cover of Apache to uh, take away some sales from the Shadows, it was. Um, Cliff and the Shadows touring in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Ah, huh. Yeah, so, I mean, just really bad luck. Mm-hmm. Or just bad timing in the U.S. Even like the first Ed Sullivan appearance, uh, Ed had Cliff come on and do scenes with the cast from The Young Ones and play no rock and roll. So uh, he was promoted more like a movie star than uh, a pop ah. star. Anyway, let's... Flip this record over and get to track one on side two, The Stranger, recorded on October 7th, 1960, written by Bill Crompton and Morgan Thunderclap Jones. I've since learned a little bit more about them from the last time we talked about this song. They were two songwriters that hung out in the Two Ice Coffee Bar, and uh, they wrote hits for Craig Douglas and uh, some other artists, including The Shadows. And, uh, yeah, I think I sold this one short and called it Son of Apache last time. It's really grown on me. Now it's one of my favorite Shadows instrumentals. in america that's a good question you know i probably should go to discogs <laughs> and and look it up the reason i keep asking that is because although your point is well taken how the ventures ran parallel to their career but by the same token they were still 
many guitar-led instrumental hits that that also charted. And you just got to wonder why the shadows didn't pop through at all. Uh, Aside from Laurie London and, and the Tornadoes, I guess it's somewhat true that there were no smashes in from Britain in America, right? Until 1964. Was there some kind of uh, prejudice among the, the, the record companies about British discs? Well, it, yeah, you know, I mean, that's a good word, prejudice. I, I, I don't know what else to call it. There was this very provincial attitude in America, certainly with Capitol Records, because Cliff was on Columbia, which was a subsidiary of EMI. EMI owned Capitol in the U.S., and EMI was promoting their British acts. Hey, we're having big success here with these guys. And Capitol was just having none of it, you know, and they had to have their hand forced to release Beatles records a few years later. Weirdly, though, in Canada, Capital of Canada released Cliff Records and released Cliff and the Shadows Records, and they were successful, you know, for the time that they were out and in the marketplace. So I don't know what else to call it, this idea of, well, you know, we know what we're doing. We we are the record business here in America, and you British people don't right. know anything. So rounding out this EP, the last song on here is FBI, recorded on September 13th, 1960. And this was a huge hit. It reached number six, stayed on the charts for 16 weeks. It's credited to the group's manager, Peter Gormley, but really it was written by Hank Marvin, Bruce Welsh, and Jed Harris. FBI with that ska beat was, I guess, pretty well entrenched in the UK at that time. Uh, Not so much here, was it? No. It just calls to mind how influential that became in Britain and and how influential Hank Marvin was to so many of the British guitarists. I mean, it's uh, overlooked, I suppose, by a lot of the Americans, right? But he was such a major force in, in Britain. Uh, even so much when McCartney did the uh, that video, was it coming up or one of those yeah. videos? Yeah. Where he he uh, assumed the identity of, of Hank Marvin. A lot of us thought he was doing Buddy Holly at the time, but in fact, it was Hank Marvin. I mean, I'm being redundant here, but all of these records are, are top notch. FBI is actually a favorite of mine, and uh, I'm a sucker for anything with a little blue beat to it. So we're going to set aside this EP. Now we're going to get to a single from Cliff and the Shadows and the A-side is a song called A Girl Like You and this was recorded January 28th, 1961 released on June 22nd, 1961 a song written by Jerry Lorden who wrote Apache this is as far away from Apache as you can get Uh, it's a jaunty number I I like it I don't think it's the best single released around this time but uh, here's A Girl Like You Angel face, we just met Well, just how lucky can one boy get? There's a light in your eyes I know it's love and I know that I could be happy With a girl like you 
Well, there's a number of songs that have that title that I do like. <laughs> I share that title. Um, the Rascals come to mind and some other bands. But this one's not one of my favorites, if I may be uh, so bold. <laughs> well, the, the only bit of trivia that I can add to this is that Cliff and the Shadows at the time were very satisfied with this record because they felt it was the first time they had made a record that didn't have any mistakes on it. Oh, wow. And it was also the last hit. It got to number three in the charts, so it was a pretty sizable hit. It was the last hit that Cliff's father heard before he passed away. And oh. as a result, it has sentimental value to uh, Cliff. Um, to be honest, though, I prefer the flip side, which is a song called Now's the Time to Fall in Love, written by Bruce Welsh and Pete Chester, who were cranking out a lot of songs for Cliff in the Shadows at this time. And uh, this was recorded on September 20th, 1960, uh, released obviously same time june 22nd 1961 it allows cliff to throw in his uh-huhs in there you know his elvis stuff it's a really infectious hybrid of everything that was happening in rock and roll you've got an everly brothers influence some doo-wop some elvis it's all here I always really dug when British artists appropriated the Everly Brothers. <laughs> and uh, I like this. Yeah, I do too. In fact, I would have had this as the A-side, you know, but then again, you can't argue with success. A girl like you went to number three. Did it do anything uh, as a B-side on the charts? Nothing. Yeah. No, and it's weird because at that time, Cliff was having double A-sides. I mean, he was having, you know, a A's becoming hits and the B's becoming hits. So we set Cliff and the Shadows aside and get back to the Shadows just on their own for the final single that we'll talk about, Contiki, which is another song written by Michael Carr. This was recorded uh, the day before they recorded A Girl Like You, January 27th, 1961, in Studio 2, Abbey Road, which was their home base. And I did not realize this until I looked it up. There's a book called The Pocket Guide to the Shadows by a guy named Malcolm Campbell. And in that book, Kontiki is a reference to Norwegian anthropologists Thor Heyerdahl's balsa wood raft that he used to sail from Peru to Polynesia in 1947. Tiki is a phrase we've always heard connected with Tiki uh, culture, right? And uh, right. that's from whence it comes, in part anyway. And uh, well, you know, I guess the whole exotica and Polynesian strain 
that came through with Martin Denny and, and a lot of other artists in the 50s, that was all purportedly born out of uh, the romance that, uh, or that culture was that, that a lot of uh, GIs experienced. Yes. Their nostalgia about uh, adventures during World War II in the South Pacific. One's got to think it doesn't all reflect flying bullets. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Some fun and games going on too, but uh, yeah, the whole backyard uh, tiki uh, craze of the fifties and and the uh, commerce connected to those records is a reflection of that, which I guess was also common with uh, British soldiers as well, right? So there had to be a, I don't know how the Martin Denny records sold in England, but there had to be some kind of consciousness, I suppose, of of all that there as well. But no, no, we haven't had to pay for a cruise in the Pacific Ocean. We've only come a few footsteps away from the lights of Piccadilly. This is the Mayfair Hotel's new beachcomber restaurant, which has converted itself into a colourful night spot that the teenagers feel they can afford once in a while and treat as a geography lesson without tears or transport. Fancy a Kalua kiss? It's a Fijian rum concoction, smooth to the lips. Or a buccaneer's tortuga, a zombie or a missionary's downfall? There'll be the flora and the fauna of the Polynesian islands around, whatever you settle for, all within that famous stone's throw, remember? So we'll flip this one over, and it's the last song we're going to discuss today. And it's called 362436. I don't think we need to get into what, what that's referring to. Um, this, this was written by The Shadows and recorded on May 25th, 1961. And to me, this sounds like it's inspired by Tequila, by the Champs. Are there any other Shadows recordings that have uh, or approach that kind of staccato uh, riff? Kind of different for them, isn't it? There are a few. I mean, up to this point in the story, no. You know, in, in terms of, and they're really like Jet Harris vehicles, Jet Black would have been one uh, very early on. Yeah, and I guess, you know, when you're doing so many instrumentals, you really do have to dig into your trick bag and come up with... Uh, some different approaches and, and different ideas and you know, kudos to them for being able to do it all the time. Right. I mean, God, how many sides did they release throughout their career? Right. It's uh, really something, but uh, yeah, I mean, no doubt about it. The British musicians were listening very closely to the American records and tequila. Oh, that just sounds like a worldwide smash.
I just looked it up and tequila was number five in the UK. So you're right. It was a, a worldwide smash. Before we go, um, as a drummer, I wanted to get your opinion on the Shadows drummer on these songs, Tony Meehan, who was all of 17, 18 uh, on these records. Yeah, I always am impressed when a young player, especially drummers, I guess drummers in particular, are good enough to cut it in the studio. I love his style. I love what he brings to these tracks. The Shadows are one of those bands that are some of their parts. Of course, Hank is the lead and, and I guess the star instrument, but it's the support from the other players that it's, it's them coming together that creates the magic. And uh, he was a good part player, Mian was, and uh, a song player and had good feel. And again, I, when you're that young, you're just, well, I don't know how long he was playing before the, the shadows formed, but uh, many young players, and I include myself in here, you're just kind of learning the ropes around that time. Uh, and you, you, you tend to overplay and not really understand what it, what it takes to, uh, to make a hit record. But he did, you know, as did Ringo and quite a few other players. You know, they, they really had... I think instinctively just knew unless they were somehow instructed on their maiden sessions to, uh, to hold back. But, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm impressed by his playing and, uh, his playing is a big part of why I like the shadows records really. But back to your question. So do I think cliff and the shadows stood a better chance of success in America if they were, uh, promoted well on a major label? I, it's anybody's guess, but, why not? There's such quality records and they fit in with what was going on on the charts here in America at the time. I don't see why, the, why they, they wouldn't have their, they, their records that hold up. Well, they still sound good today. There's, there's every reason that they should have been successful here if they were given the correct push and focus. Right. I uh, would have loved thing to the shadows on the radio here. And speaking of the radio, where would people go to find out about your radio program and everything else you're doing musically or otherwise? Yeah. Um, I guess Facebook, you know, just look for me on Facebook. I don't really have an active, active website right now. I do have this weekly streaming show on WFMU.org. It's called Denny's Den and uh, it's a lot of fun and you can check me out there. Uh, official smithereens dot, uh, Ooh, I don't know if it's net or org. <laughs> so I looked it up and it's official smithereens.com. And by the way, they are currently at the time of this recording on tour with Marshall Crenshaw. So they may be coming like the monkeys to a town near you. My thanks again to Dennis Dyken for appearing on the program. Next month, Mark Cunningham returns as we talk about another very important LP. It's the first LP from The Shadows. So I hope you'll look forward to that. I know I am. And you can always get in touch with us at our email address, which is we say yeah podcast at gmail.com.
And you can leave a comment on Podbean. I don't have the address handy for that. I'm going to say it's officialsmithereens.com. No, it's not, though. And you can also go to our Facebook page. As I mentioned, we say yeah over on Facebook. Like that page, follow it, leave a comment, contribute, participate. We post a lot of fun stuff on there. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next month. We say yeah. We say yeah. We say yeah.